you know, when you talk about how to teach things in general, I think that there's maybe it's good to reverse the question and invert it and, and maybe talk about really terrible ways to teach. In my opinion, the, the, the wrong ways to teach stuff is, is it's to start from a really low level and get people very confused and fixated on uh, the things that really don't really matter at the end of the day, right? So bike shedding about um, syntax and uh, whether to use leading or trailing commas in SQL. Um, like these are, I think, really pedantic. Welcome to the Data Bytes podcast, Joe. I am so happy I finally got connected with you, not just on LinkedIn, but also on Instagram, because you are probably one of the most well-traveled people out there. And I don't think most people know that, how much you travel. I, you're on a flight, but at least twice a week, maybe more. How much did you travel this year? I don't even know a lot of it. So like I, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty used to being on planes and airports and, uh, but yeah, I, I saw myself traveling a lot this year. Um, it's strangely probably more internationally than, than domestic, which is interesting. I think every, every couple of weeks I was, uh, going somewhere in the world, but yeah. <laughs> so and the thing is, I don't really, I don't, I don't talk about it that much. I, I mean, I might post on my stories even, but I don't even post that many pictures of it. It's just, it's pretty anonymous. So, uh, sorry, what are you going to ask? Well, and would you go somewhere and you're going to do a talk, it all kind of looks the same, right? Because you're in like a room that's like a conference center or like stages look the same. So people may not know that you're all over the world if you're just sharing like the actual talks or the people you're meeting when you've been in like Dubai and Paris and all these really fun locations. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I actually just got back from Paris. Um, it was the last Sunday afternoon or something like that. Just took a random trip there for fun, not for... Um, well, to meet some business people, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 fun. I mean, um, you, know, you travel a lot too, don't you? I mean, you, you go uh, you go places and yeah. See, I actually calculate. So I do an end of the year report on myself, and like part of it is like how many miles traveled. So I did one hundred thirty thousand miles this year. Yeah, it was. Uh, and then I took December off, although I didn't really because tomorrow I leave for Mexico, so I guess December wasn't really fully off. But that's just for fun, so I don't count it. Um, yeah, being a data person, I was like, I want to know how many miles I actually went this year. So yeah, it was a good year. I mean, I am half a Cancer and half a Capricorn. So my Cancer side of me likes to stay home and my Capricorn side of me likes to be on stage. And so, you know, I, for me, the perfect balance is like one to two trips per month, not, not what you're doing, which is like two per week. So, or more. But Speaking of traveling, I think one of the things that's caused you to travel all over the world is you are the co-author of a best-selling book, Fundamentals of Data Engineering, that has taken the world by storm, I will say. First of all, did you think the the book was going to be as big and successful as it is today when you wrote it? I think when we first had the idea for it, probably not, but... I mean, I think we had pretty early indications that it was going to be something. Um, uh, I mean, even as I kind of knew this, I kind of realized this after the fact, but our um, development editor, the person who helped you write the book, it was uh, Nicole Taché. And she had um, she was the editor assigned to all of O'Reilly's like top titles, like design data intensive applications and uh, hands-on machine learning and so forth. So I felt like we, we were in good hands. And I guess she's only assigned if, um, you know, if you're because of... Uh, 
you know, potential to be a, a big book. So I think that was maybe the first indication, although we didn't know it at the time. We just thought, yeah, who is a cool lady to work with? And but then we started noticing, I think several months before the book was out, that it was a number one new release um, through uh, pre-orders. And so that was interesting to see, I think six, seven months before, which I think is really rare to see, but it just continuously at the top of the chart before it even came out. So that was, I think, that also put the pressure on us too, because it was like, you know, you, you want to make a great book, but now the pressure is, well, like you have to make it really, really good, right? Because um, people are pre-ordering it. So... So I think it was it was good. We had no idea. I don't think it would have taken off the scale that it did. Although, you know, seeing the the early um, those early signals, I think kind of gave us an idea that it was going to be big. But you know, it's hard to hard to imagine that I think it would have been this well received around the world. Like, not a day goes by I don't see a you know a post or several posts about the book and how people you know are positively impacted by it. So that's super cool to see and uh, you know really humbling at the same time. So it's cool. So what inspired you to write the book in the first place, especially a fundamentals book, right? There's a lot of areas that you can go deep into, but I feel that fundamentals books are sometimes the harder books to write because it is starting out in a broad overview. It's like, there's so much to share, but like, how do you get people from like zero to one? So what inspired you to write this? It's a good question. And it's a hard, um, you're, you're right. It, it was hard to write I guess a book where you're trying to define a field from first principles. And so, you know, I mean, early on, actually our acquisitions editor, the person who signs the books, she told us this would be a hard book for us to write. And she kind of tried to tell us not to do it. Um, Cause it's just like, you know, you're two first time authors. Like this is a really ambitious book. And I think it's maybe a bad idea for you to do this. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't really want to write the other one. So the other one being like data engineering on, you know, technology X, Y, or Z, or, you know, kind of, cause at that, and you want to achieve a kind of a sense of permanence or at least like some sort of um, longstanding if you're going to write a book. And I feel like if you're going to write the tech book, um, you know, the tech focus book, like it's going to be out of date real quick, especially at the rate everything changes. Um, you know, I feel like data engineering. And so so it was, it was hard to write for sure. Like, you know, it took a lot of mental uh, processes to think, okay, so like what's what's not going to change as much, you know. Um, like if you're kind of looking at it, it's, it sort of reverses the the framework in which you view uh, a field, right? So now you're looking at it through the lens of, well, um, what's not going to change? Whereas the easy thing to do is focus on what's going to change, but that's really hard to predict, right? So, um, you know, so that's represented, you know, in the book through like the, the data engineering life cycle and, and the undercurrents and stuff like things that, you know, both uh, Matt Housie and I, my co-author felt like, you know, no matter what, these things are probably not going to change as much. I mean, they might evolve, but, you know, um, It'd be a hard stretch to understand like where, you know, where things would, uh, I guess, fall apart quickly. So, so that's why we wanted to write the book, I think, because there were, there were, I think there was a lot of misconceptions at the time as well in terms of, I would say misconceptions, but a lot of confusion for what data engineering is and is not. So if you did a Google and like, what is data engineering? You'd find answers like, well, it's obviously using Spark. And that would be the answer. I'm like, that's a stupid answer. Um, it doesn't really tell you anything about what data engineering is. It, it'd be like trying to describe like, what is carpentry and saying, well, it's hammers. It's like, that, that's a really stupid answer. You shouldn't do that. Um, but that's what I would see often in, uh, you know, on, online. And then, um, you know, through our consulting practice at Tertiary Data, we just, uh, you know, we're a data engineering firm. It's all we do. And so I think, you know, we just wanted to have a, a book that I think kind of distilled our experiences and knowledge, uh, you know, into a, a book. 
but yeah, so because it's so some of the reasons. I mean, it, it had nothing to do with like you know wanting to you know become a internationally globe trotting uh, pundit or any of that kind of stuff. I think uh, so. If you're looking, if you're planning to write a book, the audience, like, please don't think of that as what's going to happen. <laughs> it usually doesn't. <laughs> yes, that was a unforecasted derivative of, of one of the outcomes of it. But you make a really good point, I think, in terms of just teaching a class in technology or writing a book, which is it moves so fast that you want something that's going to last kind of at a time, which is why it's really great to get to those core concepts and principles. So can you go over a little bit about like, what are those core concepts and principles of data engineering? Because I think you made a great statement, which is so often when you look up any job title, particularly in tech, they tell you about the job title based on the tools you use. And we know that those go out of date, at least within every two, for sure, every five years, like whatever tool set you're using is going to be switching over rapidly. So how do you get beyond the tools and get to the core principles of what a job is and what would you describe are the core principles of data engineering? But yeah, the core principles of data engineering, I would say, relies on what we call the data engineering lifecycle and, and managing that lifecycle, right? So data engineering is, is, you know, if I'm going to give you the TLDR, it's essentially getting data from some sort of a source, doing something to it and then making it useful for downstream use cases, uh, such as analytics, machine learning, uh, data science and uh, other things, right? So it's it's a data-oriented um, support system. So the old trope is that data scientists spend 80, 90% of their data getting uh, day, uh, getting data, cleaning data, all this stuff, and not actually doing the stuff that they're professionally trained to do, right? So data engineer really should flip that. So it allows a data scientist to spend 80, 90% of the time doing the stuff that they are uh, you know, competent and, and, uh, and actually like to do. So... Uh, so it's it's very much that support function, um, and trying to look at it through the uh, lens of being technology agnostic, I would say that as a data engineer, I mean that is your job, right? You're you're sort of the bridge between, uh, you know, the applications that, that generate data and um, you know and um, making it useful for I guess more quote data friendly use cases or data specific use cases. Now where this gets really blurry is in some companies especially bigger companies, you know, like Google and whatnot, I, I, as far as I understand, they had um, uh, the role of software engineer was really doing all this work, right? So so, so you can look at data engineering sort of as, uh, you know, something I think it's almost irrespective of what title you give it. And it's more of a, a practice, right, to enable, again, data-specific use cases. And so, yeah, so I think that's that's about it in a nutshell. And teaching it is an interesting one where I think that you, you want to teach things from first principles and the core principles of how to not just use tools, but how to think like a data engineer. Right. So, um, but it's, it's a really hard thing to do. I think the easy thing to do is just to say, well, data engineering is obviously, um, you know, coding in Python and SQL, right. And you, you did a SQL class back in the day, a very popular one. So you, you think you understand uh, how to teach SQL, but there are certain basic principles of SQL and there's certain ways that you need to communicate about how do you um, uh, think about querying data, right? And, and like, why would you use SQL? I think that it's it's very similar to how you'd teach data engineering. I, I also um, you have a class at the University of Utah where I teach advanced SQL. Um, you know, it's very much where you're trying to distill things in a way that I think you're not going to get so caught up in syntax and like verbosity. But yeah, so I mean, when you're teaching stuff like SQL, for example, it, it's, I mean, the, I, I can 
I think it's, you know, when you're talking about how to teach things in general, I think that there's maybe it's good to reverse the question and invert it and, and maybe talk about really terrible ways to teach. And I'm sure you've um, seen this as well because you're also an educator. In my opinion, the, the, the wrong ways to teach stuff is, is it's to start from a really low level and get people very confused and fixated on uh, the things that really don't really matter at the end of the day. Right. So bike shedding about um, syntax and uh, whether to use leading or trailing commas in SQL. Um, like these are, I think, really pedantic and um, kind of a silly uh, things to discuss when you really need to approach, you know, maybe teaching SQL or data engineering from a you know, first principles level. Like, you know, SQL is developed. Why? Right. It's the interface with databases. So let's talk about that. What is it? You know. How, what's an interface and what's a database, right? And so you start deconstructing concepts at, at I think, a very fundamental level. And, and data engineering is no different. There, there are um, ways you can think about the field and, and any field where you're talking data science or whatever, where you can deconstruct things from first principles. And I think that's that's um, really the essence of, of I think, good ways of, of teaching. Because uh, Lord knows there are um, countless bad ways you can do it. But there's only a few good ways you can do it. Yeah, the, I think all of us can think of teachers we've had classes we've taken that made the subject more confusing than it needed to be for sure I know that like after I took my master's program and started really practicing data science I was like I would totally teach this way different than how I learned it like no one ever started with the overall architecture and I was like why like I need that big picture and to me even like above the architecture like take your business process and then match your business process to your enterprise architecture. Tell me how all those systems work. Then let's dive into these individual areas. But you're right. So many individuals start with not even only a tool or a language, but then even the syntax of that. And so your motivation also gets lost really rapidly when you're fighting over air messages and not knowing what that big picture of what you're trying to achieve is for too, which I think that's like the other side of it is not only are you not grasping the concept of individual, but you lose motivation with what you're trying to achieve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I always equate it to stuff like carpentry or whatever thing where you're building something that is composed of many small parts in order to build something, you know, that's much bigger than some of its parts. And I think like, you know, building a house or you know, a commercial building, I think is a really good example where. I think a lot of ways that, that people approach um, tutorials, you know, you know, the creation of more teaching them, right? It's, it's equivalent of like teaching people how to make cabinets and then saying that that's like the same as building a house. It's a, a part of a house, but it's not the same thing. And we're only going to teach you how to build cabinets, um, you know, using a, a screwdriver. You can't even use a drill. So, I mean, it gets, it's, I think that it, it being, being a myopic is an incredibly easy thing to do when teaching, I think, to your, to your point. It's, it's, we do this a lot with, um, like I said, uh, how, data science, I think, is a classic one. For one, there's not even a clear definition still of what data science is that I've seen. And so it's a fascinating field. And then you start coupling this with, well, obviously, data scientists need to be proficient in Python. SQL, and this misses the entire point. I see these all the time, these sort of descriptions. And it's like, yeah, but what about the underlying mechanisms uh, and, and thought pro processes and patterns that you need, right? So how to view a, a problem and be able to identify um, ways of solving it, 
right? I think that's more of the essence of what you're trying to teach if, you, if you're a good teacher, right? Is like how, do, how do you deconstruct, a, say, a data science problem and, and solve it? And what techniques would you use? Um, instead, what I often see, and it's quite terrible, is, well, uh, just apply um, this suite of algorithms to this problem, uh, machine learning algorithms, and hopefully I'll solve it. And like, well, but what, what if it isn't a machine learning question at all? Which in a lot of cases, uh, the, the world isn't, a, you know, doesn't need it. So, you know, it could be answered with a simple report. Uh, and I remember like one time I was interviewing this graduate, um, I have a master's program and it was a, it was intended to be a SQL type question. Um, you know, but just how, how would you group things? It's a grouping question, pretty simple. And then the, the person's like, oh yeah, I would use like K-means. And it's like, well, why? It's interesting. I mean, you could, but the data set's already there and the answer's already in the data set. It's not, there's, it's not an unsupervised problem. So, so, but this person was really itching to use machine learning. That's my whole point, right? Like they were just like, everything's a machine learning answer. And so. Yeah, and I think that comes back to your first point, which is when you're taught specifically tool-based methodology, you're going to come into a problem with a particular tool versus first assessing the problem to see what tools need it. And I think that the ability to critically think and first assess a problem is going to be even more necessary in a world of AI and automation where it can do so much of the work, the kind of hard power work of using a tool. That's what it's good at, right? But coming in and first assessing the problem and understanding like, how do I orchestrate this, right? For me, you talk a lot in carpentry. I talk a lot about it in terms of like music. So like how I taught music often was like, you don't start by composing your own music typically, right? And you'll get this because for those of you who are just listening, Joe has a bunch of keys in the background. It looks like we're not, yeah, it looks like we're not talking about data. We should probably be talking about music because I got a harp and a guitar. Like we should, this should be a music. Yeah, this should probably be a music podcast. This should be a music podcast actually. <laughs> so. So for the audience, that's it for the uh, data conversations. We're going to move on to a uh, music production yes, now. Yes, but I think that to your point, you know, really getting to that high level of assessing a problem properly and critically thinking, one, that should be the goal of every teacher. And then two, if you're a student trying to learn these concepts, that is what you should be seeing. That is what you should be challenging your knowledge with, not how great are you at Python or SQL. Yes, those will improve with time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I like the music analogy too, right? It, it's when you're teaching somebody to say uh, piano, you know, there's, there's certain patterns you start with, right? And, and so, and you start by obviously playing other people's songs. I think to your point, you're, you're not going to be composing your own. Because you, how would you even know what to compose? Right? You, you wouldn't. So. Yeah. And my, my favorite was music theory. So I was a big like music theory nerd. And what we did in music theory was we would take like an orchestral score and we would break that up and reverse engineer it and deconstruct it to, okay, these are the chord patterns. This is the overall progression. And so for me, I often say like my first like data science or data experience was like analyzing music and reverse engineering music scores because that taught me so much. I could start to see how masters of their craft constructed something together by simply just reverse engineering it and breaking it down into its like simplest forms and so like, that's why i think it's so helpful for individuals like go on and 
to Kegel and there's so many like notebooks out there that you can see what other people have done. For me, that's the best way I learn is just show me the answers and I'll reverse engineer and learn the patterns and then I'll be able to pick it up from there. But I know you have a lot of thoughts on the future of education and particularly education and tech. I know you're taught classes, you have one with O'Reilly, you're working on a few other ones. Where do you think, I know we've talked about some of the pitfalls with education and tech, but where do you think it's going? I, I, so I, I have a few ideas on this. I think um, there's a couple threads. There's, I'll give you an example of something that happened the other day. And this will, this will make sense in a second when I talk about it. But like, you know, a friend of mine, uh, I just did a podcast on this a second ago, but my friend of mine, she woke up the other day to a story that was uh, written about her and her family. So, you know, pretty high profile person might not be that new, except when you, when she read it, it was like, this, this seems like it was generated by, by a generative AI, like a large language model. So, uh, I went poking around a bit, you know, on this, um, site where this article was hosted and I was like, oh my gosh, I think this is like part of a, a big SEO effort. They're just cranking out articles, cranking them out. Like, I actually took a video of um, the page counter, uh, the blog, and, you know, how you can uh, say like page one, page two, and there were like six blogs um, per page. And this thing was literally generating, I think within about a 10 second frame, about 500 pages. I videoed it and I was like, what is going on here? That's 3000 blogs. You look at the blog titles and they're just, they have nothing to do with what this company does. And I was like, okay, this is sort of the future of content. And I'll tie this back to education in a second, right? So. I just, you know, did a podcast on this, but I feel like in general, the, the, the value of content, it's not just going to be zero pretty soon. It's going to be negative because it's, it's actually useless content. And in this woman's case, this article is full of all kinds of inaccuracies. Thankfully, it wasn't uh, disparaging. You know, it was pretty neutral. But at the same time, I'm just like, why did this, why did this article even exist in the first place? It, it serves zero purpose for this company to have this on their site. Now, what does this have to do with education? I, I think that Going forward, course creation, books, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be, um, I would say, paradoxically easier and harder um, for you to find the materials you need um, as a learner, right? And so what this means is if you're, if you're relying on a Google search to find um, content, I think by some estimations, by 2025, 95% of the internet will be full of uh, content generated by um, generative AI, Right? How are you going to know what to? How do you? How are you going to know what's real? The second component of this is an interesting one. So a few months ago, Amazon said, "Well, uh, authors can publish no more than uh, three books per day on our platform." So let that sink in for a second. Three books a day. It's a lot for an author, and. Curation and discoverability of books is going to become a lot harder, right? Um, I know with my book, there's several knockoffs of it with the same title on Amazon. You can find fundamentals, data engineering books all day. There's many knockoffs. Um, and the thing is, when I when I read the reviews on these books, it's, it's clear people are like, this is just, it's written by ChatGPT. So the barrier to entry is becoming very, very low in order to produce content. Um, and so I, I think for the future of education, what does this mean? Um, well, there's a couple of threads. Obviously, the creation of content um, is going to be 
like just blindingly easy. That doesn't mean it's any good, but you can create content. Um, it doesn't mean it adds value, but you'll create content. So the content creation is one aspect of this. And, and of course that's the supply part of it. But then the, um, the demand part, right, uh, is people who want to be educated. And so generative AI also means uh, you can use ChatGPT to uh, create any essay you want, but also uh, help you with problem solving uh, any uh, homework question you have. Uh, and so I think this, this presents an interesting uh, inflection point that we're currently going through, um, to which I'm not sure anybody knows the answer. But I think I, if I take the same approach I did with my book, focus on what's not going to change, um, people are going to want to get results if they're if they're eager to learn. I think whether people will be eager to learn is a separate question, which I'm also grappling with. Um, but the fundamental notion that um, the education the, the way we've been educating people over the past, I would say, since the industrial age um, will still hold, I think, where there's going to be a lot of tweaks to this um, that paradigm, right? The notion of essays and all that is going out the window. I, I think education is going to be more about figuring out, you know, being able to discern like what's right and wrong and why. Um, and what does this mean? Uh, it, it means fundamentally the, the nature of how we teach is going to have to change. I think it's going to be a lot more discourse driven than it used to be. It's actually going to be kind of, a, you know, it's going to harken back to the older days, I would say of, of education where you can't just read stuff anymore. Cause how do you know it's even true? But what you can do is have dialogues and, and I think discussions and, and debates and um, in order to search for truth in the subject matter you're trying to um you know, to, to learn about. Right. And so for essays, I would say like one thing I've been thinking about is, well, writing an essay that, that, that the effort of that has gone to zero, arguably. And, but if I were to give you an essay and have you improve on it, well, that might be an interesting thing. Chat GPT can sort of help you, but then I want to explain why, you know, why you made these tweaks and why is it a better essay than the other one, which might, might grade like a D or an F. And why, why can you get this to an A? Um, what does this mean for data education? I, I think that it, it's going to focus people a lot more on, you know, I was actually talking with my, my friend Ari Kaplan about this today. Um, he's over at Databricks. We we're talking about sort of the nature of what LM changed in the workforce. And I think it's very much equivalent to what it's going to change for education. You're going to need to become the master of a, of a domain and really understand your domain and really dig deeper into um, causal questions of, of how and why because the notion of how we've been doing, say, analytics is going to change, right? So the ability to answer what, when, or, or where type questions, I think, is, is it would be a bit silly because uh, a robot can do that much easier than you can. Um, and so I just think that the way we're going to be training uh, data professionals and technology professionals, professionals is going to change considerably with, with software engineers. Um, the ability to generate code, just like an essay, that's, it's super simple now. Do you need to know what the code's doing? Absolutely. Um, or maybe not. I mean, everyone's been using Stack Overflow for ages anyway, so I could argue that nobody actually understands what they do. They just copy and paste. But this, is, this takes, takes it to a completely different level. And, and so I, I think that education and, and content is really going to have to focus on the things that AI um, can't do, and that's what's going to make it effective. And so I think with, with content, for example, and, and courses as it relates to tech, um, it's going to be a lot more about building, um, you know, if, if you're a teacher, it's about building that trust and that relationship with your students. 
um, if you're a publisher, it's going to be really difficult in some ways, right? Book publishing, I think, is is uh, kind of on the, the traditional models on the way out. Um, some would say that it provides more of a moat around content creators. But if you look at who a lot of the tech publishers are getting on their roster these days, it's, it's mostly people who have a, have a large following who can sell books because publishers don't help you market. It's also people that can, um, you know, uh, coincidentally write a really good book. But if you can do these two things, and a lot of these publishers are printing on demand, you know, uh, you know the arguments, well, why, don't, why doesn't this creator just go and do it on their own? And I think increasingly you're going to start seeing that where educators are, you know, going to be, um, um, I think they have a lot more power if you're, if you're doing, uh, you know, if you're really connecting with your audience. I think this is a time when there's actually going to be ironically less competition in some ways, uh, you know, for, for people like yourself, right? And for people like me who actually, I think, have built a really good reputation and are um, also really good at um, teaching, right? Uh, and so, so it's it's an interesting one, but I, I feel like you know what we're seeing right now is is a massive uh, change that's happening in real time before our very eyes, and so it's pretty exciting. I think it's super exciting, and it's going to continue to happen faster and faster because we're on this exponential curve of building off of the foundation models that have been built, building off of the foundational infrastructure and architecture that we have, which helps so much. But I also do agree with your point about content. There was a sci-fi show on Netflix that I watched a few years back. I can't remember the name, but essentially, if you had more money, you would, you got a blocker. And you see this in like a lot of sci-fi, right? Where it's so noisy because of all of the ads that are there that you'll put an ad blocker in your brain so that you don't hear and see it all. And I think that's actually where we're headed almost in terms of content. There's just so much coming out that the luxury item will be simplicity. The luxury item will be that hyper-personalization. And so I also think that education will head that way. You know, I don't know if you saw, but like LinkedIn learning is creating their own LLM, like training it off of all of the model, all of the data that they have on what's been taught already, right? We'll see where that goes, but I do see there being a hyper-personalization in education. And then I think there's this crossover too that eventually happens of first the AI is helping us and improving us to learn. And then it just crosses a barrier where it just takes over and does a job and there's just really no point in learning. And for me, I think where we go from there is really in terms of the humanities, right? And like you mentioned in terms of these discussions. So I've been thinking of bringing back this concept in the early 18, 1900s of salons where you bring together just a diverse group of people to have discussions and talk. And I've been so hungry for that lately because I'm like, conferences don't do it anymore. I think conferences were meant to be that and they're failing us because people don't want to sit and listen to a talk. I can listen to YouTube videos, podcasts, et cetera. I just want to talk to people. And I think we need that opportunity and that environment. And I'm not seeing it happen. But more importantly, we need to have these conversations that aren't just two people in the same industry. I want to talk to philosophers. I want to talk to lawyers. I want to talk to designers. Like I want to bring this diverse skill set together. Let's make sure the lawyer's not charging while they're talking to you. Um, (laughs) Oh my goodness. I love my lawyer and I love talking to him. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm being charged for this. Like, stop making me a judge. Oh, your lawyer likes you too. Yeah, Yeah. I know. I'm like, stop making, stop, stop having me enjoy this conversation. (laughs) 
But you're absolutely right. You know, and I, I like the idea of sort of the multidisciplinary, multi-industry um, salon too. I, I I would totally go to that. I mean, I, some of my friends are doing that. Like my friend Ethan Aaron, um, was it last year? He started the uh, low-key happy hours in New York City, right? And that was meant as an effort just to bring data professionals together at a, uh, in this case, a dive bar in uh, Chelsea called Flannery's. It's really really charming place um so but the thing is it's like no salespeople are you know if you're a salesperson you're not allowed to go there and just chill like if you're gonna do that like you'll be booted or just ask not to come back um everyone buys their own drinks so there's no vendor and i think it's it's a really cool environment where people just get together um for really great conversations right it's sort of the conference without the conference or the meetup without the meetup and you're absolutely right. Like the, the conferences, I mean, Lord, I don't even know how many conferences I've been to. You go to a lot of them as well. And they serve their purpose, but it, often it's it's a purpose of conference organizers making money or, you know, vendors, you know, shilling whatever they do, which is the, the name of the game. I mean, it is what it is. I'm not going to fault anybody for doing that. That's literally the business model. Uh, but what I think you're absolutely right that the, the most interesting parts have always been, um, you know, the hallway discussions, as they call them, right? And so... My favorite thing to do at conferences is just go, you know, hang out there, uh, talk to people, go get lunch with people, go get a beer or 12 or whatever, and uh, just have good combos like, like you do, right? You're, you're very gregarious and you get out and you're very sociable. And If I attend a talk at a conference, it's like a big deal. Like if I sit through a whole talk, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I did that. Like I'm there to like socialize, have lunch, have drinks. I'm pretty much there to eat and talk, you know, like that's what i'm there for so yeah i think there's there's gonna be a lot of evolution in how we connect how we learn how we grow i'm curious about your own personal evolution so you have a term that you've coined a recovery data scientist how did you get to this point that you needed to recover and what does that mean (laughs) oh man it's a long road um, a lot of bad, bad decisions along the way. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So I think the term, so, I mean, I got into machine learning pretty early, uh, at least, in the, you know, in this, this latest phase. I mean, I've always, I actually always had an interest of, of it, even when I was a, a teenager, I grew up on a uh, cyberpunk novels in the nineties and I always had an interest in AI and, and this kind of thing and in machine learning, but it was like, it was a, a lot of us theoretical, you know, the computers back then sucked pretty bad especially if you were trying to do this on your own. So I just sort of tabled it. But I've always been interested in stuff like the singularity, which is a notion that eventually AI will you know, take over the world and whatnot and lead us onto a, a blissful future. I, I've since departed from some of those ideas. But um, yeah, I mean, I was you know, working as... Um, so who was it? It was me, Dave Gonzalez, who's uh, Ben Taylor's uh, business partner. And a few other people, and we we had this uh, early um, auto ML uh, company. We, might, we I think we might have been the first one, if not one of the first auto ML companies in the world. And so I was a software engineer there, actually. And so I I quickly realized that you know the the whole notion of like machine learning and automated machine learning, the algorithms was like, I think the fairly trivial part, even though it's complicated. You know, in that case, in, the, in those times, we're doing ensemble learning, uh, which is just kind of a tournament of best fit for you know, the, what, whether our algorithm is going to work for that data set. But the things like, okay, it's so like automating feature engineering, for example, right? Which is what you should probably want to do if you're getting a data set. And like all this other stuff, uh, hosting models and retraining. Like none of, there, was no, there was not a playbook for this kind of stuff. Like you had to kind of figure it out. And so so we were, uh, that was some of the stuff I was working on. And then I kept noticing as data science started taking off around, what was that like? 
became popular in the early 2010s and it reached kind of a crescendo around like 2014, 2015 with the uh, rise of deep learning and the popularity of that. And I kept noticing like people were hiring data scientists, including myself and like, I don't know, there's not usually a lot of data to do anything interesting with or people hadn't thought through the problems, but the whole, it kind of reminds me of today actually with this whole AI boom right now where everyone's like, oh, we got to get into AI. But, you know, it's like, why? It's like, well, because everyone else is doing it. Like, that's cool. Um, it's the same It's the same mentality as far as I can tell right now. And what does this all mean as far as recovering data scientists goes? Well, I think after you see enough uh, instances of people trying to do data science, often when there's no data upon which to do the science, then you, you start getting a bit uh, skeptical. Um, I think Dave and Ben, we, you know, especially Dave, he's a bit curmudgeon like me, started calling each other reformed data scientists. I think it changed it to recovering uh, just... Uh, because why not? It sounds cooler. Um, but, you know, that, that sort of stuck. You can sell a 12-step <coughs> program with that. If you have it as recovering, you can yeah. also add on, like, here's how I recovered. Here's, here's how, how recovered you can, can too. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I found Christ. And, uh, yeah, it's was, it was great. Um, so it's just one of those things where I felt like, you know, and I definitely felt like I was a lone voice. Around, like, this is about 2015. Yeah, you know, that's when I started getting more into data engineering because I realized that that's maybe um, – you know, the, the, it sets the foundation for data science to succeed. The inverse is never true. I, I can't do data science, you know, a lot of data science and, and say, oh, we need to bring in the data engineers uh, because they're going to, we're going to help support them. Right. It was the other way around. And so, you know, I got into data engineering. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. Like, why would you not do data science? And I was like, I don't know. Um, just trust me on this one. And, and so, but now, you know, I think you fast forward to today and that, um, that sense of, uh, you know, um, those observations, I think, would have been proven true, right? I mean, data engineering is, is now seen as sort of a prerequisite to data science. But back then, it wasn't obvious because uh, everyone was telling you that it, that was um, just definitely not the case. Just do data science and everything will take care of itself like magic, right? And so... Yeah, and I would say it was also kind of looked at as like a lesser than of data science. And now it's like, no, that's foundational. And more valuable and how much I think even more so there's going to be more question of what is data science and what does data science do I know um, do you know of our pre Shoda he him and I were just discussing this yeah we were discussing this last week of like okay now we have like ML engineers ML ops analysts like data engineers what does the data scientist do like where do they fit in like is it a b testing like well, an analyst could do that, and do we even need them to do that? And like, what is that role? So I think it's even going to become more prevalent here in the future of like that question. And I think it also just gives the rise to the value of data engineering as well. For sure. And you mentioned the word analyst. I mean, I remember back in the day when analysts was a four-letter word as well, right? Like data science, do you write analysts? Well, yeah, but they just they just make reports and do it, you know, analytics. Like that's some somehow like a lesser thing, right? even though it's been around longer. And and now what I thought was funny too is data science, you know, it started out as sort of, I think the Drew Conway Venn diagram of, um, you know, what was it like hacking skills and domain expertise and like stats or something like that or something like that. But it was, and I think it, back in the day is often equated with machine learning, but then because job titles will do what they do, right? It starts agglomerating everything else around it, like, like a black hole. Um, just sucks in every other conceivable like tangential 
role and that becomes data science. I mean, the same thing's happening with data engineering right now, to be perfectly frank. And, and so, so, I mean, the, the term data science has been, I don't even know what it is. I don't think anyone does, you know, it, so that's, that's kind of where you are right now though. It, it's exactly what you said. Is that an analyst? Is that a, um, you know, is that a, this or that, or you know, what, what is it? And so, but so it's been a victim of its own success in some ways, right? I mean, it was a huge job. I think we also have to give it like credit too, because I think the role of the data scientist has led to what I would call like the data science job, right? Before it was the idea that like as a data scientist is almost expected you're like this full stack data scientist where you are a data engineer, a data product manager, a data analyst, a ML engineer, and an ML ops person, right? Like that was before the job. And so it's almost like we need to say thank you data science and now we're going to bury you <laughs> we have we have appreciate you have given us and you have birthed many more job titles and many more to come from here oh yeah well and it made data it made data cool right so i mean i got into data like in the you know early 2000s late 90s whatever it was like back then data was like the least cool job you could get into you'd have to be like really lame to want to get into that field. I mean, the cool thing to do back then, if you're going to do data, is become a quant on Wall Street. You know, I was about to become an actuary, like uh, Harpreet was. But those are your options back then. I mean, you don't have a lot of options. I mean, it was like, you know, I always joke, it's like, uh, if you ever watch Office Space, it's like the guy with the red stapler, it's like locked in the basement. Like that's pretty much what a data person was back then. It was like, just not a cool job, right? But data science, I think to your point, the, the positives is it brought data to, to the forefront of like every business, right? The analytics didn't do that. And, and we all, so I got into data science in 2014 and I think we all met the people too who, who were the person in quote unquote data science before and were that person with the stapler in the basement. And they were kind of, gruntled at these new kids coming in and like oh you're making this cool and like i've been doing this forever right <laughs> and i'm like i'm sorry i didn't come up with this but i'm also super grateful with like how popular the the rise of data science got because for me i was working in a neuroscience lab was like yeah i can't handle academia it's way too slow i love doing experiments i love working with data i love the science side of it and just through like a google search found the term data science started reading how it's like these rebels that's how i read about it was like these rebels from academia right and i was like i want to be a rebel too you know <laughs> and so that's what got me into it so i like again i'm super grateful for the birth of data science and what it's led but i think if you're getting into the field also know like this is a continual evolution right there are so many other opportunities out there and it's only going to continue to evolve and probably at a faster rate than what you and I have even seen today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's having an interesting conversation again with uh, Pernori. And it was interesting because uh, we're just talking about the kind of the notion of work in general and how, you know, in a few years time, I mean, he, he says, and I think he's right, like, you know, the job's going to, the job of a data person is going to move more towards a, the role of being a a product manager, but not in the way we traditionally think of it. It's going to be managing, you know, different AI agents and bots to do, do your bidding. And the thing that's been on my mind too is sort of, well, you have that, you know, and you have all these uh, bots, maybe they're trained in company data, maybe they're not. But if, if you're just using some sort of autonomous agents to do your job, 
Well, why, why do you have to do that at one job? Why don't you just do that at like a bunch of jobs? Like, why, why don't you just have this sort of, uh, so I think the nature, it'll be interesting to see the nature of work where I think that, you know, the, the possibility exists for, um, you know, you, you could be fractional at, at a bunch of companies and, um, you know, because you have the capability, you can, you can be in multiple places at once and providing utility. So why wouldn't you? Don't get me started on this topic because um, I'm, I love this topic. I could talk about it for days. I'm also reading this book, uh, The Pathless Path. It's great. It talks about like getting off the default path of career and work. And I really struggle when people ask me what I do because I like have 10 different job titles. And I was noticing that as I was even like, we create show notes for the show and write like, what are your current job and past job? And yours, you have like three current jobs or four or five, right? And I've noticed that as a trend of more and more people, it's not one job title people have anymore. They have multiple things and i think that we really need to expand this like notion of work it's not a singularity right we're multifaceted and i can only do all the things i can do today because of the tools of technology at my fingertips so it allows me to transverse many different sectors but i think that is going to be the trend and so the way i look at it is everyone in the future is going to be an orchestrator right before you used to be a cellist, the violinist, the piano player, you're not going to do those roles anymore. That is what the AI is going to do, but you are going to be the conductor. And so that to me is what I think like future of work is headed towards. And the people who are doing multiple jobs right now are setting that trend and already could position themselves well for that. Well, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because you had the kind of the, during the COVID um, era, you know, people were doing kind of double dipping on jobs and, and some people were saying, Oh, that's, that's wrong. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, it's efficient. And <laughs> so, yeah, but, um, but I think it's, it's, a, it was a sign of things to come. I think it's, it's more of the broader point, right. Do you think to what you're saying? It's, I mean, and then, you know, AI is only going to increase, um, I think people's capability to do that. And so, you know, I think the nature of work is definitely going to be changing as a result. Um, I, I hope so. Cause it's, it's sort of the, uh, you know, I was joking you know, with my friend today about this too. It's like, uh, you know, there's nothing that says like monogamy to your job is a sin in the Bible. Right. Uh, and so like, why, why, if you have the ability to, you know, sort of go out um, <laughs> with a bunch of uh, different jobs and then why wouldn't you, you know, I mean, it, it helps you and it helps everybody else. And so, um you know, because I think you're going to see just insane amounts of, um, uh, you know, possibilities and, and productivity, you know, uh, potential with the stuff that we just haven't had before. You know, obviously there's there's you know, there, there's always downsides to stuff. But there's always upsides as well. And I think that this is uh, because it, it's interesting because, you know, Sadie, because we're, we're, we're just staring at um, just I think we're at the very beginning of, a, of an inflection point. And uh, it's exciting to see. Yeah, I have no idea where this goes. I mean, I have kids and I try and you know, teach them that, you know, whatever your school is teaching you, you know, uh, there's certain things that are useful, but I would say that the career advice is probably not the one you want to be paying attention to. So it's probably bad for me to say that. So apologies to teachers, but it's true. <laughs> so You're making a mini rebels already. <laughs> I love it. I, I So I guess my question for you is thinking of this future of work, what does the future of Joe's work look like here in the next year or two? 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of we kind of talked about content creation, and um, you know, what what I'm focusing on right now is sort of what's a, you know what's the next path for education for tech and data. Um, you know, either are people interested in the field or, or currently working in it. Now, so I'm starting a new company. Uh, I'll announce that pretty soon. It's it, you know, I think it, it represents sort of the next phase of where I think tech education and data education needs to go. This is publishing books, courses, you know, workshops, and so forth. But I really feel like I think courses are, are in better shape, but book publishing is one where I feel like it's still the model is still stuck in in the legacy model of uh, brick and mortar sales. And the notion of a book is changing, as, as we talked about earlier. Content, you know, the value of most content is going to drop to like below zero, actually. And so it's really about the notion of building community, building um, trust and attention around not just the book, but around the idea and around the author and around the content creator. And, and I, I think providing a you know a moat, um, you know, for for people to, to succeed, right? Either you know helping them establish their own platforms, you know, or providing a platform for content creators and uh, authors to, to do their best work. And I think, and more importantly, I think be treated fairly, treated with respect and treated, um, you know, and paid accordingly. The, the thing I don't like about the traditional publishing um, uh, world right now is it's, it's very lopsided in the, in the publisher's favor, but in the world of print on demand in a world where, where again, the, it, it's a distribution and marketing is largely reliant upon the, the authors who did all the hard work to create the content in the first place. Why is it that the, Publishers, you know, take so much and provide so little in return, you know? Um, and so I'm just going through my own experiences and looking at those of others. And I, and I realized that, the, you know, there's, I think there's a really good opportunity to, to change this model and, and really provide, I, I think, um, you know, a, a platform and an experience uh, both for um, learners and, and for creators that's, um, you know, amazing. And, I, and I, you know, and again, I work with some amazing companies. I think they're spearheading this and, and you know, with courses, especially I, I think like companies like deep learning AI, I have nothing but, you know, utmost respect for, I think they're, they're leading the charge in terms of how it should be done. I think Andrew Ng is single-handedly the best uh, course instructor on the planet period. Um, but, you know, when I look at the kind of zoom out into the broader picture of, of what the possibilities are, I think that there's, there's a ton of potential to help augment, um, you know, what companies you know, like his are doing and, as well as I think shake up the publishing industry, which, you know, I have some experience with and you know, I can't say my experience I'm very happy with, but I'll leave it for another day. Uh, but I, I would say that, you know, there's an opportunity, I think, to really help shape the future of, of where this industry goes. Because to me, the biggest gap that, that exists in the tech industry right now, it's not a shortage of tools and technology. I think we have, we can't complain that we have bad tools. We can't complain that we have no, uh, um, too, few, too few uh, technologies to solve problems in the data field. I think if you came to me and said that, I would say, fine, take a time machine back to 2010. And I'll drop you off there and you can go figure this out. Right. And you can't get back either. Um, and so that that's, you know, but it, so I don't think, you know, so if, if it's not a tool, if it's not a tooling problem, and yet we're still asking the same questions we have been asking for the past few decades, we're still having the same problems in data, especially, which is how do I get the business to care about data? How do I get more value out of data and show it? How do I do this or that or the other thing? To me, this is it's there's a fundamental disconnect between the possibilities and the potentials of the tools we have, and the uh, I guess the level that we're coming in to um, solve these problems. Part of this, I think, a big part of this is a lack of I, I, I would say skills education, not just in terms of how to use tools and technologies, but I think having a broader understanding of how to apply your domain knowledge 
um, to leveraging these tools to solve real business problems. And I feel like it just the whole notion of what we're teaching needs to be rethought and how, how we're teaching it. I, I just think that we, we've had a whole generation of data science and data uh, professionals graduate that I don't think that they got the best education in order, in order to fully um, you know, serve businesses. And so that, that's, that's, that's my mission for next year is really focusing and years after that, obviously, but fully, I think, help solve that problem. Because I think if we can solve that problem, the amount of value that we can create as an industry, I think, will, will, um, will grow uh, considerably. If we can't solve this problem, you know, we're, we're going to be stuck in, in the same sort of a hamster wheel we've been on for a long time. And it, it pains me to see that, especially as I get older, because then I just sound really cranky. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, I have noticed getting a lot more. I've noticed this year in particular, I've said when I was younger, dot, dot, dot. And I was oh, like, this is this is not good. So I'm starting to reach that pinnacle where it's like, OK, we got to make some changes. So I'm a, very supportive of what you're doing in this endeavor. Thank you. Yeah, because I mean, in a couple of years, years you're going to turn into a witch. And then it's like, you know, you get a flap on a broomstick. <laughs> just cackle at everybody that are just having problems with their, their data. And just, yeah, just so, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so you can get quite curmudgeonly in this field. So if you're new into this, that's why I do enjoy hanging out with uh, university students because I'm like, wow, you are so positive about the world and the prospects of what you're going to do. And I'm like, please wear off on me a little bit more because oh no I, I like that too i always feel bad too because the teachers bring me in because they wanted to get the, the students get the industry perspective and then i can kind of see that the teachers over there kind of cringing as i talk and i'm just like you invited me you invited larry david over you wanted the real world perspective well, let me give it to you rob <laughs> exactly Exactly. So it's, it's, it's interesting, but yeah, yeah, you see the same thing. So it's, uh, you know, and I, nothing but, nothing but positive support for all the uh, students out there wanting to get into this, do it. The world's your oyster. Yes. And you know, it's like the, the founder of NVIDIA said, which is if you knew how hard it was going to be, you wouldn't have tried. Right. So I think keep the positivity Think keep thinking that it's going to be super easy because if you know how hard it's going to be, you wouldn't try. And we need people who are going to try and so <laughs> on that note we'll end on a positive note there and rev it up so anyways joe thank you so much for coming on the show i encourage everybody to check out joe's social profiles give him a follow definitely check out the book if you have not read it yet and look forward to catching everybody next time on the date fight podcast goodbye everybody thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the data bites podcast if you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.